Welcome to another episode of Comedy Wham Presents with me, your host, Valerie, and sometime co-host, Miss Purrington. ComedyWham.com is your place to go for features about all Austin comedy. You can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Comedy Wham or on our Comedy Wham Facebook page. In addition to podcasts, Comedy Wham brings you articles, album reviews, live shows, and an events page for live shows in Austin and Houston. If you're a comic in those cities and want your show featured on the calendar, go to the events page and click submit a show to complete the short survey. Now let's get back to our podcast. Launched in 2016, the podcast project brings you funny people and their stories. As a fan, I like to delve into a comic's background and motivations and will usually take a detour along the way. Consider the interview a way for you to get to know the folks that make the Austin comedy scene one of the best in the country. And if you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, please rate and review us on iTunes. All right, let's get to our guest. Today, I'm talking to somebody who's got uh, some pretty impressive production crew credits, including shows like Botched, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Big Brother, and Dancing with the Stars. He is actually from Austin, but uh, after spending some time in LA, came back to his hometown here. And he launched the Daily Open Mic before COVID, uh, congratulations to him for being recently engaged, and he is the current owner of the Romo Room. And now, Comedy Wham presents a guest, Rob Morris. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Valerie. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of uh, non-comedy specific there. Congratulations first on your engagement. It's very Thank exciting. you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, of course. Um, We've got a lot of ground to cover with you because you have uh, a very rich background as a uh, performer and somebody in the entertainment world before settling into your current role as the owner and uh, of Romo Room as well as being a, a, a comic. Uh, so let's uh, kick off with my icebreaker question, which is one word to describe your past. One word to describe my past. Um, wow, that is a really solid question. That's like that's like a deep. I don't. It's an interesting icebreaker question. That seems like a like a third act kind of thing where I sum up everything that we've talked about. Uh, no, but that's an interesting idea. One word to sum up my past. Um, I, I guess in my head, and then because we're talking about, I guess, the way I see it, because I'm going to be telling you that story. For me, it's very episodic. Hmm. Um, I move a lot. I've always moved a lot. I've had like over 20 bedrooms before I graduated high school. I, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I moved a lot. And, um, and, and since then I've, I've kept that up. I'm someone who like rearranges their bedroom every few months just cause I want it to be a little bit different. Uh -huh. Um, so I think of, I, I think of my life very ephemerally and in a very episodic way. I'm like, Oh, right. I forget about season three. I'm like, well, Jesus, that was a million years ago. I can't believe that even happened. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess that's it. I wish I had a bit more of an editorial kind of word to put on it, but I feel like that's maybe for other people to come up with when they yeah. hear the story. <laughs> well, that's very interesting because I really thought that your life was growing up in Austin and then going to, uh, and I had to search for what the acronym was, but for uh, the University of North Carolina School of Arts. Well and done. Then go, and then, yeah, 
and then go. No, to that Dallas. is commonly commonly <laughs> spoken incorrectly. So you did a great job. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, no wonder that they use the acronym for. Everything. Yeah, and it's not in Chapel Hill. Everybody listening, <laughs> it's a different university. We're not UNC. <laughs> Uh, time in LA and then a return to Austin. So those are the chapters that I know about your life. Uh, those are big ones. Those yeah. are really big ones. Yeah. And they certainly seem to have made big impacts on, on your, on your life. Um, tell me about when you were growing up, what role did comedy have in your life? I think, uh, I think for a lot of people, probably, well, I shouldn't say probably for a lot of people because I've spoken to them and they've told me, uh, I share the experience of comedy as escapism. You know, uh, a lot of comics have varied paths of dysfunction. And every now and then you get a, you know, somebody who's like, yeah, I don't know. I grew up great. I'm funny. And you're like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> but generally it's more complicated and a little darker than that for a lot of us. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in, I wouldn't call it a broken home, but I'd say just, you know, a, a, an American dysfunctional family. And, I had once, I have one sibling, I have a sister who's almost 10 years older than me and she wasn't always around. So I say for most intents and purposes, I was an only child. And for me, it was, it was refuge from whatever might be going on in the house or going on in our lives or whatever. And I could retreat to the world of somebody talking. Mm -hmm. And I've always been in love with language. I, I'm just mm -hmm. one of those dudes. I, I don't know that that's everybody's experience with comedy, but like the specific I love puns and I love uh, the the progression of human language, how things change and how we decide all of a sudden that words are like against the rules and all of a sudden some rules disappear and we're allowed to say stuff again. Like it, lately that doesn't feel like that's happened as much, but it's, yeah, I, I've always been fascinated by it. And when I was a kid, I, I was always trying to push my vocabulary. I was always trying to sound like a grown up. I, you know, I wanted to, wanted to be an adult since I was like six. So I loved listening to grownups talk about their lives. And if it was funny, that was the best version of that. Yeah. Um, I used to fall asleep when I was a kid listening to stand up albums. Oh, wow. Like, like CDs or actually, we actually had some vinyl, but like tapes and CDs and all, all that. And I would just put it on like some people put on a sound machine or the radio to fall asleep. I would listen to Bill Engvall. Here's your sign for the like, 800th time wow. uh yeah it's weird it's weird right it's kind of yeah, weird thing that, to that do. Is, yeah yeah uh and now it's like when i host a a headliner that i'm like enamored with and like so happy to have them in the club they do their fourth show of the weekend and i'm like i got it you know if it's the same hour like i still watch and i love it and i laugh again but you start to be like okay i've heard the joke jokes <laughs> kind of lose their fire a little bit the fourth sure. time in the same weekend but when i was a kid it was like i never got tired of it yeah. I just watch Chris Rock again I just watch Carlin again like I just wanted to keep and I think it was because for me it was like I know I don't I can't define it or articulate it but I know I'm learning something right now like every mm -hmm. time I hear it intonation and timing and pauses and I had no ambition of being a comic when I was a kid I just thought it was a cool thing to learn how it worked yeah and um and I saw the especially when I, so I was born in 88. So growing up in the nineties in the bubble of comedy then as a kid, where it was like, you know, everyone was still on their track from like tonight show to sitcom to, you know, it was still so linear. And for me, it, it was the age of rock stars, you know, Eddie Murphy, yeah. like 
some people are like, oh, I wanted to be, I don't know, John Bon Jovi or somebody. And I was like, fuck that. Eddie Murphy is my rock star. Like I think he, he's, he's living the rock star life. I want, I, I just thought they were cooler. Yeah. <laughs> um, so all of that kind of developed into it. And I was just always a junkie. I mean, I watched a lot of Comedy Central, any album I could find. I would hear comics in their acts mention other comics. And then I would go look those kids up and be mm. like, you know, uh, like Pat Oswalt would name drop someone who is less famous, like Blanca Patch or somebody. And I would be like, it's Blanca Patch. And I would like go try to find him on the internet on like Napster or whatever it was at the time. <laughs> and uh, so, so and I said, of- well, I wanted to soak in it. Yeah, so instead of being a voracious reader, you were a voracious listener. And yeah. Yeah, I have to, I have to think that as a you know, as a child or a teen absorbing all of this this information, you know, there's some level of osmosis that that happens until, you know, some later time when you can call upon, you know, how to write a joke or how to deliver something. Uh, I think or- I was also a kid desperate for a personality. Like mm-hmm. I was really I was really like, who, you know, every kid's like, who am I? What am I? What, what's my, what am I doing here? What's the purpose of all this? You start asking those kinds of questions. And for me, it was about seeing how other people got treated. And I loved the way people treated funny people. Hmm. I was like, man, they just, seems like their life is easier because everybody's just like, ah, I love that man. He brings me, he's funny. I like that dude. And I, yeah. and I think I was always searching for it. I was a big impressionist when I was a kid. Like I am, of course, I was doing all the bits I was memorizing, like all the time. And if it could make my parents laugh, I would be like, oh, awesome. I go back, try to find another one that worked. And Uh yeah, it wasn't even like, I'm trying to be a comedian. It was like, I'm trying to be a person. Like, I'm just trying to become a human. And I like the stuff these people are saying, not just on a funny level, but on like a, I remember listening to David Cross during the Bush administration and he like changed me politically as a person when I was like oblivious. And now all of a sudden I'm like, this is outrageous. Like (laughs) that's where I found that. I didn't know from my parents or the news. I learned from comedy people bitching about stuff. This is (laughs) fucked up. Um, Uh, So what did, what did you do in, you know, before college that took you, that you decided that you were going to pursue a school of arts uh, degree? Uh, I started doing community theater when I was 13 in Round Rock. Okay. Uh, at Sam Bass Community Theater, which is um, shit. They've got to be 40 years old plus wow. by at this point. It's a cool place too. It's wild. It's so they, I don't know if any of your listeners are familiar with this. Um, I haven't been there in a really long time, but there was a train station downtown and they, a small building, like I'm talking a hundred years ago. Uh-huh. And they stopped using it as a train station. I think they rerouted the train away from it anyway. So it's like it didn't serve it. It was just empty building. But it was historic because it had been there for a really long time. They literally picked this building up. They put it on a truck and they moved it to Round Rock off oh. 35 and 620 and put it in this park. And they made it a theater. Wow. And so it's this 50 seat, tiny, tiny little room that's been there. They've been doing plays there for 30, 40 years and it's all volunteer. They pay the city a dollar a year for rent. Oh my gosh. They, nobody gets paid. Everybody just does it because they love it. Uh-huh. And um, from ages 13 to 19, I was, I lived there. Yeah. It was everything to me. Yeah. So that's, that was the beginning of headed, headed in that direction. Mm-hmm. What did you love about performing then? 
Well, interestingly enough, I, I only did so much performing. Uh, I, I remember the first thing I did there, uh, I got fired oh. because yeah, I was, uh, I was 13, maybe even 12. And my buddy was doing props for this, this really <laughs> horrific play called the bad seed. There's a really bad movie about it too, but this little girl who like kills people and, so that was the play and the, there's a bunch of props in it. They just have to be a prop heavy show. So me and my other 13 year old friend were hired to do props. And so, you know, those fake cigarettes that you like blow on and the puff of smoke comes out the front of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We had those in the play. And I think at some point me and my buddy were like dicking around with them backstage, like, um, you know, 13. Yeah. And someone saw that. And then later they went missing and everybody thought it was me. Oh. And so the director was like, politely and didn't tell me why was like, yeah, I don't think we need you. It's just not as much of a workload as we thought and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, let me go from it. And I had no idea. And then weeks later, I found out they fired me because they thought I stole something, oh, which gosh. I did not do. And uh, it's so funny because I went back three shows later and uh, it was an adult show again. And I ran the lights because there wasn't anything else to do. It was like in the summer. And so I just wanted something to do. And the next one after that was a kid show, like a youth guild production where everybody's going to be a kid. And so I got in that and that was awesome. That was one of the first times I was ever like really performing in front of people and like learning a whole play and stuff. But then that was over and I was like, okay, well now what? And they're like, well, we don't have another Youth Guild show till next year. So do you want to go back to the light booth? And that is how I got set on doing the technical side of things. And, and that's been a huge part. That's I've never left that completely. If yeah. anything, I've embraced that more than performing along the way. Um, and that's that's how like production got started. I originally at School of the Arts was not in the drama department. I was in the lighting department. I transferred. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I've always liked performing. It's it's great, but I was just more interested actually in how it all got done. I mm -hmm. thought that was the cooler part. I still kind of think that's more interesting. Yeah, no, and that that seems to be a through line because I saw. So one of the things that you did when you were at uh, UNC at UNCSA, I'm going to try to do that acronym right by it, was the podcast at the Elephants. Yeah. And then, well, I did it after school. I didn't do it while I was there. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. So there was that. But then I think there was another podcast that seemed the This is Heavy Doc, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a that was another podcast, right? Yeah, and I've done. One, I think I've done four. Okay. All right. Well. Yeah. <laughs> a season. We could call it a season. <laughs> well, no, it's 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 interesting to bring it up because I I have this thing about starting projects and continuing projects long, long term is not me. I'm not <laughs> that guy. I am a projects-based uh -huh. dude. Uh, I, I, I work better that way. My enthusiasm level is higher in the beginning. My focus level is higher. And it inevitably, no matter how cool it is of what I'm working on, it drops off. I mean, some of the TV shows I work on, and this is, this is true for most people who work on a lot of these shows, you start the season excited because you're like, man, we're back and this is fun and I love the show. And then by three months in, you're like, are we done with the <laughs> Jesus Christ? Like, this has got to be over, right? Are we done with this? Yeah. And then you're, you're excited again. Uh, but I need that turnover. So for me, it's, it's important to just keep having new stuff. And I don't beat myself up for like, this is heavy doc. I think I did five episodes of it, uh -huh. maybe. 
And then my political uh, talk show that I did, which is called Robbing the People, I think we did like 15 episodes of, but that was like a like a Bill Maher style production of, huh. that was a whole thing. So that wasn't just like two microphones and we sit in a closet and like, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, which was kind of what This Is Heavy Doc was. I mean, a video as well, but yeah. Um, point being, yeah, I, I, I get ideas and I act on them quickly. And then when I lose enthusiasm on the idea, I just drop it, and move on to something else. And I'll beat myself up about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, a lot of the, the LA entertainment industry is you never know if your show is going to get picked up for another season. So you kind of, you, you know, you're mentally prepared for this, you know, at least for somebody who's starting in that industry, you're you mentally prepare that you, you might get picked up for a project working with a show that and the show is only gonna last a season the industry that i work in in la of unscripted reality is the only part of hollywood i can effectively commentate on i don't know anything else about anything else but yeah. i can speak to that industry and say it's the only one i'm familiar with and other yeah. parts of production might work this way but this one does where if you're on a show it's very common for you to have to go to your boss and say, I got another offer on another show that is either a promotion and or a raise and the schedule will extend my overall work time longer if I leave now and go do that than if I stayed on this show till the end. Mm -hmm. And you meet zero resistance huh. from that. It is not, no one, everyone's like, well, fuck yeah, you gotta go, dude. Huh. Yeah, we'll take, we'll figure it out. Can you give us, can you work with us? Give us a few days to find somebody else. Like we'll plug, it's just how it goes. You can't deny somebody because every one of us knows every job will end. Yeah. No job is forever. Even Big Brother has been on for 20 seasons. Dancing with the Stars have been on 29 seasons. We're contracted. If next year they don't want to work with us for whatever reason, not like you guys blew it. We decided to take the show in a new direction. So we fired the whole crew and hired a whole new one. They're entitled to do that whenever they want. And I don't even, I mean, my feelings hurt by it. The show is bigger than me. Um, but that's, that's always looming over you. And I knew, mm. I knew from the time I left high school, I'd never be happy in a job that had security because it would mean I'd have to do the same thing all the time. And I don't like that. So I have, that's, that's the trade-off is in return. I am yeah. always newly stimulated but i'm also always like fuck am i gonna have a job mm -hmm. that's yeah that's part yeah. of it so layered through all of uh, all the things that we've talked about so far at what point do you decide to give stand-up comedy like being on a stage and performing comedy when do you decide to give that a shot especially so, since you're such a student of it right it's, it's something that i think is it's interesting because i've jumped into other things in my life so much more confidently. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, I couldn't, when I was a kid, pick up a guitar and just practice in my room and get great. Mm. And so stand up is one of those things where I always respected it as a craft, as an art form, as something that like, you know, I've listened to people talk about it forever, not just on stage in their act, but then, you know, I was, I would look for behind the scenes and interviews before podcasts where everybody just like told their whole thoughts. You used to have to go find them off stage giving it to you as themselves and not their comedy act version yeah. of themselves and so but i was hungry for that so i went looking for it and i i think i was just always very intimidated i was mm -hmm. like i 
I think I'm a funny person, but I don't trust that I can write things down and come up with my own concepts. Like I would do plays where they were funny plays and I would do great. Like give me somebody else's words and I know how to make them funny. And then I could, you know, hit it every night. It was I don't know, like trying to pat myself on the back. I just found that easier by yeah. leaps and bounds. And then they're like, all right, now do the same thing, but you have to write it all. I was like, I, yeah, no, <laughs> just like shock and, and dread. Yeah. And then my first, exp- I was just talking to somebody about this a couple of days ago. My first experience ever doing something that is like stand up, uh, <laughs> appropriately for my, my overall story, I think was uh, a eulogy. Um, so when I was in the eighth grade, uh, I had a theater teacher at Cedar Valley middle school in round rock, uh, named Jim Pryor. And he is the guy who led me and my best friend, Brandon, to go to the community theater that like shaped us into who we were. You know, I was, I was playing football before I was doing theater. So stupid. And I got, I met this teacher and he inspired me and he told me about, Hey, you can not just do this at school. You could be doing this. We do this every night at this place. So we started going there, huge thing. I go through, I leave middle school, I go through high school. I moving and moving and changing around, but I'm still always in contact with Sam Bass Theater. I'm there a lot. And um, Jim and his wife, Ronnie, who I'm still very close with, uh, just became, you know, more than a teacher. We were friends. Um, and very tragically, when I was in 19, uh, he committed suicide. Oh. And it rocked the community. I mean, he had been at that school forever. There were a billion alumni and a thousand teachers that were just devastated by it. It, it was without going into detail, dramatic. Um, and so they asked me to speak at the memorial service, which was at the palace theater in Georgetown seats, about 400 people. And it was full, you know, standing room and and they put me up last. And so I'm sitting in the audience and I'm like watching all these different people, students, teachers, friends talk about him and say all these like sweet, sad things with an occasional little like the way he used to, you know, chuckle line or something. But mostly everyone is this is room is like you can feel the the pressure just pushing us all down in it. And I I had a list of things I wanted to talk about, but I didn't, I'm not a, I'm not a full form writer. When I start writing full form, like every word, it starts to sound like nonfiction. It doesn't sound like comedy. And so I have to just have bullets and get up there and try to just do it. And so I had that on a little notebook and I took it up on stage after everybody else. And I, Jesus Christ, I was 19. It was very, very long time ago, but so I, so that being said, I don't remember what I said, but I know that my, my point of the whole thing was I want to do two things while I'm up here. I want to make sure that I don't bum you guys out any more than you already are. I'm trying. And so I, I was trying to find every laugh line in what I was talking about that I could. And once I started getting them, I started pushing that and punching it harder. I was like, yes, I'm shaking up this room. They're, yeah. they're breathing. They're actually breathing when they've been over there just like, <laughs> stuck on tears and, and convulsions. And, and so I just, it was like Thor's hammer in the sky. Just, I was like, I, and it wasn't about the power. It was like the ability to affect that many people at once without anyone else's words was new 
and, yeah. and shocking to me. And so I got a lot of positive reception for that. Um, you know, uh, I was asked to speak at a several other things after I did that. Um, and then I didn't do comedy for like almost 10 years, but that was, that was the moment that I figured it out. And then the idea of going to like an open mic at a bar after that experience was like just too scary. Mm -hmm. And then plus I went to college and my conservatory program was like 70 hours a week, six days a week. There was, you know, we didn't have time for extracurriculars because school was both our curricular and extracurricular yeah. work. So I didn't, the whole time I was in North Carolina, uh, I was there almost uh, like seven and a half, eight years. I didn't do it. And then when I finally graduated, I moved to New York and I started working at Comedy Central. And when I left that job, I told my boss, I want to go to LA for a few reasons. And one of those reasons is I want to get involved in the professional comedy community, not the television production side, like the performance. I don't know if I want to be a comic, but I know I want to be at the clubs, at the shows. I want to be in the actual comedy like business. Uh -huh. And so I didn't know what that meant. Uh, he, my boss uh, at Comedy Central had worked there for 17 years. He'd worked with the, the top A-listers and, and uh, both in comedy and just tel uh, television and film acting. And his advice was, I think you're funnier than most people who try to do stand-up. But I think most comics I've met in my life are not happy people. Huh. And I wish you all the luck. And I'm really curious how it works out for you. And it was, and it was a very, yeah, I'll never forget that for the rest yeah. of my whole life. It was, it was very poignant. And he's totally right. That was the, that was astute. That was accurate. Um, it was the second part. Uh, <laughs> but, but so when I got to LA, uh, I think I did my first open mic like three months after I moved there, two months maybe, um, after I kind of got my apartment and got established. Um, I went to the El Cid on Sunset and I told a story about when I was a kid, I got attacked by an emu on a farm, which is true. <laughs> and, and I, someone came up to me afterwards and they were like, do you do a lot of comedy? And I was like, nah, that was like my first like real open mic, honestly. Mm -hmm. And they were like, really? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, you should keep doing it. They weren't overly flattering. <laughs> Yeah. But they were like, that's cool. Like, I think, I think this is a fit. And so I started taking it seriously and I started hitting mics all the time. I started hosting open mics and producing my own shows. And then I dug into it. So from like 2016 to 2019, I was a comedian. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like what I was doing after work every day. Um, but after really putting my heart and soul into it, I think it was 2018, maybe in January, my New Year's resolution was I'm going to make sure I do stand up every single night for this month, okay. like no exceptions. And if I did, I think I missed two days. And so I would make sure to do like three sets on Sunday hmm. so that I would make up for it. And I just pounded the pavement. And at the end of the month, I was like, nope, don't oh, like it. Really? Nope, not at all. I don't want to wow. do it this often. Like, uh -huh. it's just, it's now it feels like work. It feels like it's not fun. If this was my source of income and I relied on it to live, I'd be broke anytime yeah. soon because then I'd be like, you know, I need a month 
<laughs> like to not do this. And so it was just a great tell to be like, oh, cool. It'll always be something that you work on. That's a hobby for you. That's interesting to you. Mm-hmm. But just like acting, I looked at the path of actually making it your job yeah. and went, nah, fuck that, man. That's just not my life. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to be in auditions every fucking day. Like uh, acting sucks. <laughs> it's so much work for so many jobs you don't want. And if you get really, really lucky, it, it kind of works out. But even then, it's not like they just give you shit. The most right. famous people in the world still have to audition to be the next thing half the time. Right. So I, I don't, I'm not into that. It's not fun for me. Yeah. So life is short and I don't want to do shit that's not fun with all my time. So to me, it was a simple, simple choice of like, you know, I, I did start playing the guitar when I was a kid. I started playing the drums. I figured out how to play, you know, to do stand up. But all these things are just, you know, uh, jack of all little, trades. Yeah. You're episodic. Master you're... of none. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's 17 to 19. Is that the, the year period? 2017 to? Uh, yeah. 2017 to 2019. I mean, I think I did my first stuff in 2016, but not a lot. Sorry. The cat has uh, decided to be really annoying right now. I don't know if you can pick it up. Hopefully. Not. No, no worries. It's not okay. a big deal. Cats are like that. Yeah. Uh, she's just been a piece of work today. Um, <laughs> And I don't edit this, so everybody listening is going to know about it. Uh, okay, so it was, so so what was it that got you, so, so you have fallen out of love with, with uh, the stand-up comedy as a career. Right. And what was it, but you're still working as a production, on production crews with. Yeah, Jess. I'm a producer the whole time that's happening. So you're you're super busy, you're living the life in, in LA and you make a decision to come back to Austin. Mm-hmm. What, what motivated you to leave? Cause you spent time in New York and right. then time in LA. So as far as being part of uh, production crews, I mean, this is, this is where you, these are the cities that you go to. Correct but you wanted to come back to Austin. Well, yeah, uh, a little bit of want, a little bit of need. Um, I don't live here full time. Okay. I still live in LA. Okay. I still have a place there um, in Glendale. Uh, me and my fiance, I, legally, technically, my address is Los Angeles, but okay. um, I'm here half the time. And uh, at this point, it's been a little bit more than half, especially because of uh, COVID. So. Uh, I guess that story starts in 2019. It goes back a little further than that, but really where it kicks in is 2019. My father, uh, who is, you know, pretty, I I always say raised me by himself. It's not true. I mean that when I lived with my dad, there was not another co-parent most of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mom is lovely and she very much is like alive and raised me as well. But like, my dad was a single dad is, is the correct phrase for the longest time. Um, worked 60 hours a week in collision repair. It's what almost everyone in my family does for a living. And uh, he got sick and he had a few different issues and his recovery took so long that he was let go from his job. And it's been 
And then uh, my both of my grandparents on his side, maybe his parents both passed away in like six months. And so it was like one thing after another. Yeah. And it all kind of culminated in this like big pile of, of, of mess that led to some depression and led to some issues where it was like, it became hard to recover fully from all of it. And there are a few other medical issues that came up. So we started talking on the phone one day and he was saying, you know, I have no income. I can't work. And, you know, getting disability is like a multi-year crazy difficult thing to do, which we're in the middle of. Um, But he's like, I don't know what to do. You know, I need income. I need to do something. And I have a little bit of savings, not not a lot, but I have some and I want to, I want to. I want to buy a business, I think is how he put it. And he's like, I don't know, maybe a nail salon or a Jiffy Lube or something. You know, it's like maybe we could invest in something like that and I could just get something, you know, like a little bit just to pay for medical shit and food. Like I just need some income. Yeah. And I was like, man, I, I, it sounds interesting, but I don't know shit about salons and Jiffy Lubes, man. I ain't that guy. <laughs> like if you want to do that, you need to go find that guy. Yeah. And you got all my support. Uh. But what was going on in LA at the time as I was doing comedy were these pay-to-play mics where you would go to these bars and clubs and try to get on at the improv or the store or flappers or wherever. You end up spending three hours there. Maybe you get up to do the three minutes. Maybe you don't. Mm -hmm. And all these places started open up in LA where you could sign up online the day before and you would pay them $5 for the five-minute set but you were only there for an hour. So you would come in at the six o'clock mic and at 6.50, all eight comics, which was the only fucking people who were there, got to get their set in. Everybody had to stay. Mm -hmm. They like put on the thing like, hey, we're locking the door behind you. So get here on fucking time and you're not leaving until the 50 minutes is over. You pitch that to some comics and they're like, that sounds like a nightmare. But to us in LA who were living through that comedy scene, it was a fucking godsend. Like, it was like, thank God we can get up and work, even if it's for seven people. Cause even if we do the mic at the improv sometimes, you know, for example, like we, you do the like Wednesday mic at the improv on Melrose and you got to get there and sign up in person. They really want you to get something at the bar. I don't think that place enforced a minimum or anything, but they, you know, greatly encouraged it. But there's bookers who sit at the back of the room sometimes, sometimes not that audience is fucking dog shit. It's like 30 comics that are like nervous and they're just thinking about what their audition that's coming up. And it's, so it is like going to an audition, Mm -hmm. which I already mentioned, I hate. Uh, (laughs) So I don't want to audition. I want to work out. I don't want to practice. And then later I'll go to your audition with my best shit. And these places that were just like hole in the wall equivalent of like dive bars, but with no bar, literally just like a room with chairs and a stage and a mic and that's it. And it's black. And you're just like, we just sitting here and pay $5 for this. (laughs) We were thrilled. Not everybody liked it, but enough so that every one of these places had every mic full from 5 PM to 11 every single day of the Uh. week at eight different locations, no shortage. So I looked at this and I was like, man, these guys cracked the code of shitty open mics. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't like the system, there's got to be enough people who have a little bit of money, you know, $5 a night to like go do this system. Yeah. 
And when I would come back to Austin to visit my family while I was doing comedy, I would try to get up and I would go to Cap or I would go to Cold Town or I would go to, you know, this bar or that bar or whatever. And I was like, they only have the shit ones. They have the club one at Cap once a week. Mm-hmm. Fuck that, first of all. Like, your only club in town has one open mic is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> I, I so hope that when they come back, that's one of the things that they do differently. Yeah. We do it six nights a week yeah. and we have multiple Multiples. blocks. Like, do it's like, do you want your scene to get better? One a week and three minutes for 28 people or whatever? Insane to me. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that model existing as long as there's other stuff too to supplement the fact that you guys are not supporting the local comics by giving them room to grow. So my genius idea was take one of these pay to plays to Austin. I'm doing the math. Like this is going to bring in like maybe four or five grand a month. We'll pay the bills. I'll give the rest to pop. There we go. And when I come to town, I'll do that. I'll work out there and, Maybe I'll, I'll hit up some of the other stuff. Yeah. And the plan was to come here in 2019, December, spend the month of December building out the daily open mic, as you uh, referenced, uh, offer stage time every day, start with a couple of mics a night and eventually expand to like the five to 11 evening block where we're just, you know, running all night. And the Austin community was not a fan of that no. concept to put it lightly. Um, there was a huge, huge backlash to us and a uh, vicious, uh, vitriol-filled, emotional, dramatic attempt to destroy us. And I choose every single one of those words purposefully. Um, It was personal. It was... um, difficult, you know, and it was also at a time when I was, you know, I didn't publish on the front page of what we were doing. Hey, uh, I'm just trying to help out my sick dad. And, uh, you know, this is something that I really love. So I thought you guys would love it. I didn't push that first. I pushed, this is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, do you, do you mind if I, if I please stop? Because I I really, this is something I expected to come up. Uh, and, I want to be transparent too with you because you know we've been covering the scene for years and and I I don't I hope I really really hope that there's nothing that that we as comedy wham did to personally attack or or come at I I, uh, I hope because I I I know from my perspective I saw it as okay this is an outsider who doesn't know anything about Austin who's applying this model that has never been done in Austin. Right. But I, you know, I don't think I, I personally attacked you. I don't think that you felt uh, the same way they did, but you kept it inside as best you remember. Yeah. Because I, I do try to make comedy wham be like, you know, we are, are, we cover the scene. We, we would, put the, the show because I think you did submit your shows to that's the right and you put them up and I put them up because yes you did you know, uh and it was actually it was interesting because you know I was hearing the chatter the negative chatter and it was because of your your uh open mic model that we said you know we're gonna put a four-week uh trial period for anybody that submits an open mic new open mic because if it doesn't last four weeks then you know 
it's not it doesn't have legs but you right. went past the four weeks so there was a you had a a model that was working in the scene and you know chatter be damned yeah and i i am uh i'm personally sad to know that a lot of people didn't understand your motivations and what was happening in your personal life because i think had they known a little bit more i think they would have been far more welcoming i mean yeah you don't want to and i'm very much the same way i feel i feel a very strong connection to your story about how uh, personal things that are affecting your life you don't necessarily want to broadcast them because you don't you want people to judge you on your merits and what you bring professionally right and you don't necessarily want to say i've got this really troubling personal thing happening please take sympathy on me and embrace my business model right exactly and the idea of doing the business model was not this is a good business model because my dad is sick right i pitched the idea to austin so to speak by mm -hmm. trying to open it yeah because i believe in it and valerie to this day the pay-to-play, one-hour, five-dollars, five-minute mic model is a fucking good idea, period. And I will challenge anybody <laughs> to this day that has a problem with it, don't come if you don't want to. Yeah. You don't have to. Yeah. But that was not the response we got. The response we got was turn to entertainment saying, we will not book anyone who comes here. Jay White Cotton saying, we will not book anyone who comes here. Uh, I don't need to name drop everybody else no. who gave a shit. Um, we're very good with Amy and Shannon, by the way. Uh, yeah. That has been uh, deeply reconciled, and we've put up Shannon um, so multiple times. So we're all we're all good there. Uh, we haven't heard from everybody who tried to burn us down. Of course, I'm sure there's yeah. people who still resent it. Maybe there's some shame in what they did. Maybe they still agree with the way they handled it. Who cares? Yeah. The point is, is that like so many other moments in my life and my story, I try to do something new that people weren't familiar with, but I knew it was a good idea. And so as much as it was painful, I wasn't hurt that Austin didn't like my comedy idea. I was hurt because they were trying to kneecap this thing that I was doing to try to save my family. Yeah. And then when I came out and tried to explain that element of it, it was, it was not met comfortably either so to to counter slightly to your point you're like if they had known well two things on that first of all fuck them if they didn't want to find out i have yeah. to tell them for them to be compassionate sure. they can't assume that there might be something going on that they might ask another question maybe this guy's got stuff going on that we don't understand no no benefit of the doubt so no to that and to the second thing they did eventually find out and it didn't really change anything hmm. It wasn't the thing to them. And it's yeah. so funny because what was coupled with all of this hate and attack was it was coupled with like it was ironic how often people would in the same breath be like, Austin is a really inclusive scene and we let everybody <laughs> do what they want to do. And this is a great town to do comedy in and we make the best comedy. And I hope you fail. Get the fuck out of our town. Yeah. I'm like, do you hear the whole fucking thing you just said? <laughs> like, it's, it can't be both things. Like yeah. I, <laughs> I thought it was so interesting, but what was really cool, and this is where the story gets 
less dark and upsetting. There were a few people who said, I don't give a fuck what Pat Dean says. I don't care what Jay White Cotton or, or anybody else says I can or can't do. Those guys don't put me up anyway. I'm going to the Romo room, which we had to change it to so that we could survive mm-hmm. because the daily was trashed so hard that I was like, if I even try to open it called that, it's it, no one will come, period. Yeah. At the very least, I have to rebrand. And that rebranding came with ditching the pay to play scheme, you know, uh, of how we were doing it. And instead, uh, just saying, hey, it's free, suggested donation. Uh, we'll, sh- we'll film your set and sell you a $10 tape if you want, uh, you know, buy a little thing. We were trying to figure out any way to just pay the rent on this place that we had signed a lease on and believed would be a good spot for play- people to work out. And not only did comics slowly start coming more and more, some of the comics who were on the fence, every single one of them that came to that shitty office space on Olin Road walked in and went, okay, this is dope. All right, this is cool. All right, I was wrong. I'm sorry. One of those first people was Ozzy Moon, who's now one of my producers at the run. We've been working together for since then, since since that day. Uh, And it built. And not only did it build comedy-wise, it built audience-wise. We had 40 people watching an open mic every Sunday night, like it was a real showcase. Mm -hmm. And they're dropping $100 bills in the bucket because they're like, man, thank God, more comedy. And I was like, I knew it. (laughs) I fucking knew not only would this like be a thing people would enjoy, but I knew the town was hungry for more. Mm -hmm. I knew that there was like, why? And you tell me that this is a sincere non-rhetorical question, Valerie, who's been here for a long time. Why did nobody else in town ever do a Sunday open mic because of cap? What, why not do another one? Intimidation what what do you mean what does that mean well because it's it's there's only 30 spots (laughs) yeah uh i I don't know you have to take the night off if you don't get on it cap that's the choice there is crazy there yeah there is there is a perceived value to being one of the uh people in that back hall Oh, so you're supposed to go to it even though you didn't make it on and hang out so that they see that you're a loyalist. Correct. Cool system. (laughs) Sounds friendly. (laughs) Inclusive, as Austin always says. (laughs) Well, yes, inclusive. We we want you, we want everybody here because, hey, that looks like a built-up audience, right? It does, but does it not lend to that classic quote of, you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. (laughs) When you try to own everything, you will become an asshole. It always happens. You can't be the only one in town. So I, I think there's a couple of things at play. One is I don't think that messaging came from cap city. Oh, surely not. I think that messaging came from the comics who were in the, the, you know, uh, what do you call it? The accepted comics at Cap. The gatekeepers. And the gatekeepers. Yeah. And you know, do I do I love that? No, of course I don't. But I also know that as you grow a comedy scene, it's inevitable. There's not, you know, there is not a corporate structure 
that control. Oh, but there you... will be. <laughs> I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news. Well, tell it's about me. to get it's about to get real, real corporate, so to speak. I mean, I I want to speak in conjecture on something that's public, but uh-huh. there. Cap City, as I understand it, is not going to be operated by the same people that operated it previously. Right. Um, it will be functioning with different management. They're going to have different ideas. Um, and the people I understand to be in charge of that own clubs all over the country. So right. what made Cap City Cap City was that it wasn't helium. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I don't want to be presumptuous because I don't know what their new business model is. I know right. that they're really smart to use the IP. Um, they're really smart to, to use the brand of Cap City, even if that's not really what it is, because mm-hmm. it's not the same place or people. So how is it Cap City? But whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to. And I, I'm being serious when I say I'm, I'm not trying to to talk down the idea of that club or there being a great club like that. Like I, I played it. I, I've uh, seen great shows there. Like, and a lot of comics that I deeply respect love cap. So I, there's, there's not a, there's not really an animosity towards that organization, especially because I don't know any of them personally. Like I don't have that one-on-one relationship with Colleen or Mark or Maggie. Like none of those people are people I know. What I know is how it affected the scene in the town that I'm from. I know what it felt like to be a comic who was from Austin, who would come back and visit and try to, you know, short term get involved and stuff. And it felt inaccessible. It felt like I couldn't get involved anywhere. It felt like when you go to a mic, and this was another thing that that really upset me about the culture of it. Obviously, Cap City Mic on Sunday was different because there was incentive to stand in the room. Mm-hmm. but every mic I went to in Austin was three people sitting in the room, one person on stage, 30 fucking comedians smoking cigarettes outside on the patio waiting for their turn. And then what expecting for someone to watch them when they didn't watch anybody else. Yeah. And that's inclusivity. And they're standing in like their four groups of click friends that they only talk to that are closed circles that are not easy to walk up into. And, mm-hmm. So I just, I just felt like I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm reasonable. I'm friendly. And I can't get in the comedy scene in my own hometown. Like I can't even, I can't even find a way to like participate in this with, you know, and I started going to the fourth wall in North Hollywood. And within like three weeks, I had done like 10 sets there. And I felt like it was my new home club. Hmm. I was in love. I was like, oh man, I'm making these friends and we're all doing shit every day. And I realized that the only difference was frequency. It was just that we had more chances to watch each other work and get up and, oh, I got to take off. I got another mic. I got to go to another mic. And then I'm coming home and I'm like, there's one mic on Sunday. I understand there's not going to be 10 like in LA. I'm not delusional, but one in the whole city, unless and maybe a bar in Georgetown might have an open mic 40 minutes away, but I just thought it was ludicrous. And so, of course, especially after all of the comedy scene was like, get the fuck out of our town. I was like, guess what? Our open mic is eight o'clock on Sundays. See you there. And it was full. It was full every week. Yeah. Because comics were like, I ain't going to go hang out there. 
I'm not, I'm not a stand-up hangouter. I'm a stand-up comic. I want to do fucking comedy. So they would come and get the stage time. And not only that, we were offering people six, seven minute sets. So it's like, do you want to go try to get three minutes at cap? Or do you want to come do six, really get into it and have some time to work out some new shit? Maybe try a four minute story that you haven't had a chance to do anywhere. Um, and not because we wanted to put anybody out of business or make anybody else lose. I, I love the expression. And I think this is a, a Gary Vaynerchuk thing, but if it's not his uh, credit to whoever it is, but I, I just love the idea. He says, there's two ways to build the tallest building in town. You can build the tallest building or you can knock everybody else's down. Oh shit! And they're both, good. they're both strangely legitimate ways to do business, mm-hmm. but one of them makes you an asshole. That's just how it goes. And I'm not saying that Cap was trying to do that on purpose. I don't know enough to see it and know that for a fact, but I see the result and that's undeniable. And one of the things that's really big to us and we're going to be really loud about it this year at the Romo Room is, uh, you know, we sign contracts with these big guys, just like you do when you hire somebody like that. And, and we get into the nitty gritty of it and, and we make a deal that works for us and them. And uh, we are exclusively uh, against non-compete agreements. We don't believe in saying to somebody, oh, you played our club, so you can't come back to a 30 mile radius for another eight months or whatever the, if you want to play Vulcan on Friday and Romo room on Saturday and Creek in the cave on Sunday, I think we all win. I think that's better for everybody. Like it, if you can sell those tickets. Now I understand that that starts changing and we need to be honest with people as we work out draw and seat numbers and all that kind of stuff, you know, you got to get into it. But the idea that I'm going to say like, mm, sorry, Brett Ernst played my club in January. So you're not, don't touch him. He's yeah. Brett's ours. And then what? We're going to start putting people in columns of like, oh no, Nate Bargatze's exclusively a Creek in the Cave comic or Dove Davidoff only plays the Romo room. Like that's, that that's no way to do fucking business. That is knocking other people's buildings down. That's trying to own it all. And all I ever see that do is make things worse. I, I think the more, and, and every comic I've talked to at all levels from open micers to headliners agree, it's better when there's more. Abundance, you know, high tides raise all shit. I'm like a fucking cliche machine today, <laughs> but it's true. These are true things. Uh, uh, one, of yeah. the things one of the things that, that I think has been incredibly interesting to watch is, I mean, you, you, you talk, you started talking about how, you know, Cap City was the only mic on a Sunday night. And I remember the days when we had the calendar, you know, pre-COVID and yeah, Sunday night, not much there. Uh, most nights, not really that it's much there. It's a weekend. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a weekend. And I look at the, uh, the, the post, the, the during COVID times and the, emergence uh, starting August, September of, of last year. And I think about how people like you and, and Brandon and, um, oh gosh, this uh, Marty. Oh, Marty Clark, uh, Jesus Christ, 700 shows a week. <laughs> yeah. I think about how you guys uh, 
broke the system that was to aggressively push for a different way for Austin comedy to operate. And right. now when I look at the calendar and I'm like, how is anybody supposed to figure out what's going on? Because there is so much that you're offering us, but you're making it look like an LA and a New York where there is just so much to offer. And, you know, I think, I think it is an interesting time because there are so many comics. I think, you know, as with anything, the comics that aren't going to survive past a year of open mics, you know, those will go by the wayside. Everybody sees those, those people coming through. I love but, those people. <laughs> I do. My, my favorite people are the people who do stand-up comedy for like eight months and they're done forever. Sometimes they're hilarious. <laughs> Some like for real. They just, and then they're like me, they just don't have it in them. They're like, I don't fucking want to do this all the time. Yeah. Every now and then there's someone in that group. And then for years you talk about him. You're like, oh, Kevin, man. I wish you'd have seen Kevin when he was doing <laughs> comedy. He owns a fucking bar now, but he, he used to be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you, how do you feel? A lot of times these interviews lately, I ask, you know, how did you spend your, your time during COVID? Uh, right. and, I, and I imagine you are just like, I was just tinkering with the formula so that I could come back and, you know, take over the world. Uh, no, we don't want to take over the world. We want to be part of it. Yeah. How, how did you, how do you see yourself as part of the Austin comedy scene now that you, you went through hell? Sure. You know, your first entry into the scene and now you're, you know, I loved you. You posted. We're recording this on April eighteenth. You just had Dob David off, headline right. the Romo Room, and I love the post that you shared uh, this morning. You know, Facebook is so stupid about when it reveals. I love the post that you shared, and I don't want to say it in in my words. I want to hear you say it in your words, like the the moment that you you just you shared with with us, and how it feels today versus you know how it felt when you first came back to austin Oof. yeah night and day for sure um so yeah what, what the post that you referenced uh essentially was uh when i worked at viacom in 2013 uh this really cool guy named ian stearns uh who used to produce comedy albums so like if you if you listen to stand-up albums between produced by Comedy Central Records between like 2005 and 2000, like 13, 14, they were probably produced by this guy, Ian Stearns. Uh, he did almost all of them and he had this so good that I don't work there. They'd totally fire me if I told the story. Uh, he gave me the key to this closet that they had that was like a merch closet. So if they had a comic who was coming by the network to kind of like talk about, hey, should I do my album with you guys? They would give them some CDs and some posters and some merch shit to kind of be like, hey, this is what we do. You know, you want to take a listen to this album or whatever. And they had just, they would get a box of like 50 CDs for a release. And they'd get rid of like four and then the other would go in the closet. So there's just this stockpile of like stand-up CDs and posters and tchotchkes and just weird shit. And he was like, he was like, you ever want to take anything from the closet? Just take it. And I was like, what? And he was like, 
yeah, man, who gives a shit? He's like, we have so much stuff in there. And then I found out too, he was leaving him like a month later to go to oh. SoundCloud. That's why. <laughs> but he, uh, he, he was like, yeah, man, you know, and it, it wasn't a big deal. They did have like way plenty. I, yeah. I did not like really steal much of anything from them. And then, you know, it was given to me, but I went in and I took all these posters. They had all these like six, uh, 17 by whatever the fuck, like typical poster size, yeah. like for the album releases. And they were like the kind you would see like, on, on the side of the subway, not the big ones, but the smaller ones. And I was, I just started grabbing all the ones I thought were cool. Even if I hadn't heard the album, but I was a fan of the comic and then the graphic was cool. I was like, fuck yeah. And then I would yeah. go like, listen to the album. So I carried those around for years. I had them in my apartment in New York. I had them in my apartment in LA. And then when I opened the Romo room or I opened the daily, I put them up on the wall as like a collage of just like all those posters in a big pattern. Um, and you know, it was strangely people found something in that too to to <laughs> give a shit about. Um, but then we, you know, we shut down that Romo room, and then we kind of went into storage for a while. We did a lot of digital stuff last year. To poke at your uh, other question about what we did, we did a lot of podcasting and reactions and some roasts and just trying to get creative online. And we kind of pushed through that, just doing shit out of like Ozzy's apartment. And then in the fall. We started doing shows again. We did one at the venue. We were doing some different stuff. Then we landed at the Brass Tap, and that evolved into us having the Romo room in their back uh, venue area. So I put the posters up again, uh, up in the back of the Romo room. Not all of them, I don't think, but like, no, no, I, think I, may, I might still have put all of them up there. Um, and one of the posters that I put up was Dub Davidoff. Uh, I, I love that dude so much. Uh, he's one of those comics... He's one of those comics that to this day, I still feel this way about him, but I definitely did when I first found him, which was like, oh, seven, oh, eight. I was like, I found a fucking jet, but no one knows. Like, I felt like it was cool. Like he had a Comedy Central Presents. He was not an unknown comic, but you you couldn't go most places and be like, Dove Davidoff. And they're like, you know, didn't know who I've met. I told my girlfriend, he's playing at the cellar. We got to go fucking see him. And I saw him and I was just like, man, this is, I, I just- I'm obsessed with this dude's energy so strange and the way he like floats around in material. And I, I just always been a huge fan. And so of course, when I'm in the closet, I'm like dub David off poster. You bet. I'm gonna yeah. take that one always in the collection. And so it's, it's been up at the room and then we've been working with some different agencies and uh, people with booking. And uh, you know, at one point I got a list uh, from a group and they were like dubs one of he's in our stable. Uh, I saw his name on the list and I was like ASAP. If he's, if he's working, you know, uh, we want, I, I gotta have him down. And, uh, so we came, we had a great weekend. Uh, Saturday was sold out early and late. Um, and before he left, I was like, you mind, would you sign the poster? And so we got the ladder out and he climbs up on it. We did a little video of him signing the poster. He's very gracious about it. And, um, it was a cool moment, but I, I just had this, I, I don't know if it's an ADD thing or, or what part of my personality, but I am a, I'm a laser focused worker. I'm, I can't do both. I'm either like at work or I'm not. And uh -huh. so even when it was happening and I was filming him signing this poster, which for me, uh, I've been in love with this guy as a comic since I was like 12. And I'm like, I can't believe this is happening, but I didn't process any of that as it was happening. I was just like getting it for the gram and then it was over. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool. And see, and I had to take him to his hotel and I was like, all right, let's get out of here. 
I drive him at the hotel and he shakes my hand and says something nice. And I'm like, all right, I'm driving back to Romo room. Cause I have to do a set at the dirty birdie show with Ozzy. And I'm thinking about it kind of loosely. And it, it's almost like this thought and these feelings are like trying to get into my head. And I'm like, ah, I can't not right now. And then I woke up this morning and I was like blown away. I, it, it all rushed in at the same time because I was finally done working in my brain. And it was, you put Dub David off this weekend up at your club and sold out shows like four shows. Like this isn't like cool. Like that time you saw him at the cellar and dice dropped in. And that was neat. That, that like, that was cool, but fuck that. This was crazy. And it just rushed into me. I got very emotional and that's kind of where the post came from was just to feel that progress. And I'm getting back to your bigger question, which is like, how do I feel now in comparison to how I felt a year and some change ago? It's a lot of that. It's a lot of, I can't feel it yet, you know, a lot of times. And I, I said to somebody, one of my uh, best buddies, Anthony Bain, he's also a comic and helped us build the place. Uh, I told him last night, I said, I feel like I just don't like cake as much as I like baking. Mm. I just want to make it. I want to do it. I want to, I want to, I want to make it possible. I want to make it exist. I want to, there's an old song from this musical called Sunday in the Park with George. It's about the painter who did the, the famous painting in the park. And, and he has this great song called Finishing the Hat. And, there's a, and it's about him finishing a hat as he's painting. And there's a line in the song where he says, look, I made a hat where there never was a hat. And like the profundity of that kind of thing of like, the, as an artist, you generate Thing. It's like, it's like, to me, it's like almost on the level of being like a scientist who like invents things. It's like you, 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 you create it out of nothing, out of nothingness. You just had an idea. And then I came back a few months later and there's a fucking thing that you made. And it either like does something really cool or makes money or like solves a disease or like that to this day, I don't think I'll ever get over the fact that human beings are capable of that. And it's my favorite thing. Hmm. And so I get in that mode and I don't, I'm not in the mode of like, oh, this is fun. Hey, this is crazy. Like, I can't do that at the same time. And so then I take these breaks and it all just crashes over me. And to me, it's like, I couldn't be more proud of everybody that I work with. I, I have to say that um, I've been getting a lot of, yeah, the see, and I'm feeling it because it's like coming into <laughs> me now. As I talk about everyone else, not me, it's, it's not... I get a lot of praise. I've been getting a lot of very positive responses. And obviously I'm posting about the success we've had. And so it's coming at me and I really yeah. appreciate it. It's very kind, every, all, all of that. But I just like when I used to direct plays, I just want to push it all off of me and onto everyone else that's a part of it. You know, it's like, wow, it's crazy what you did this weekend. And I was like, yeah, Dove did it. You know, <laughs> the show that was good Sure, I made it possible. I baked the cake, but you're a fan of cake. That's what you like. And you should thank the cake. <laughs> like that's the that's what made you happy, really. And it, it's hard for me to take almost any ownership of it. But the fact that I started this 16 months ago or whatever with with these guys and girls, and now they come to me and they're like, This is my favorite thing in my life. I've been told that in the last few days. Like being here is just it's my favorite thing. And I'm like, done. Cool. We did it. Victory. 
victory. I don't care what Cap does. I don't care what anybody else does. I don't care what Marty and Brandon, you know, we're, we're doing it and we're all doing it together. And I have no, when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, if we can just keep doing that, I don't even need the tallest building. Can we just have a building? Like, can we just participate? I, I really feel that way. I, I'm, I'm afraid of, of chasing power. I'm afraid of chasing absolutisms. I, I, I get intimidated and scared when I feel like I'm getting to 100% of anything. I'm like, oh, let's not max it out. Because scary things happen when you start pushing the red line. I don't know. It, it's an instinct thing. And so as a result, at no point from daily open mic to the Romo room or, or podcasting, anything I've ever done, have I ever been like, I'm going to be the number one. Like, nah, let yeah. that go to somebody who needs that. You know, like let, if that you need to, then you need it. <laughs> I don't yeah. need it. I'll be third <laughs> place. It's cool. I, you know, as long as I get to play, I just want to play. And I just want everybody else to get to. And the thing that I loved about building the Romo room with these other guys is even though I hadn't been in the Austin comedy community for a really long time, like pounding pavement, like some of them, they had, yeah, and they knew what it was like. And they liked this new thing because it added value to their life and to their comedy career period. So yeah. let's do it. It's, it's simple to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like as much progress as it is and as wild as it is to hear like Joe Rogan say the name of our club on his <laughs> podcast and not in a weird way or a competitive yeah. way, like, yeah. A, yeah, we're all doing it. Like he sounded like me and Marty and Brandon. It was like, we're, it, 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 that's cool. But at the yeah. same time, the fact that Anthony Bain is his favorite place in the world, fucking I'll take that. <laughs> and you can flush all that other stuff. Like to me, it's just, it doesn't compare. I, yeah. Yeah. I, and to see people like, uh, you know, my buddy, Pat Bernard, who's, who's really taken over a major role in what we're doing. Uh, he's really my number two guy. And, you know, to see him in the transformation, you know, he's from Pennsylvania. He moved here just a few months before COVID, like in uh, October, 2019 or something like that, mm -hmm. November, maybe. And to see him go from a guy who was trying to do comedy and figure out exactly what he's all about to now he's putting up his favorite comics too, and producing major shows and running his own comedy club. And I almost just want to give it to him. I'm like, like you see, you're so happy. Like, I don't, you know, I'll go find something else. Cause I'm yeah. most happy when something's brand new. And already this is like, we've been doing this for a year. I got to find another project. I just, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, but I just, it well, itches. I was, yeah. I was going to say, you know, given your, your episodic uh, way of, of life, you know, how does it feel that, you know, something is growing and it's sticking. How does it, yeah, how do you, how are you fighting that itch to to find a new project? There's a lot of newness in this. It's um it's growing at such a pace that it is mm -hmm. constantly new. Yeah. That's what's helping me. Um you know, in October, we put up a great comic uh, named Sam Butler, bilingual comic. We put him up at the venue. Uh Ozzy was supposed to produce the show. He had a tragedy in his family, he had to stay in El Paso. I flew in from LA. I was working on Dancing with the Stars at the time. I flew in from LA to help produce the show and make sure it all got off. And I'm sitting with Pat Bernard and 
were like waiting before the doors open. And I said, I want to get, I want to be the first place in town to get a celebrity headliner. Like since everything's happened, I want to put someone up that everyone's like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. And not because I wanted to like win or beat anybody, but I was like, that's the next step for us. Look what we're doing here. This ain't no office space. We're at a real place. We're putting up real comics. This is a really good show. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's take another, what would it take? What do we need? Some money to make it happen? Is that what it is? Like if it's a down payment and we're going to make money on the show, I'll invest. Like, you know, well, let's figure it out. And then in December, I get a call from Pat. I think it was at Target with my fiance. I was like walking to the car and I get a call from Pat and he said, I figured it out. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the celebrity headliner thing. I was like, what do you mean you figured it out? He goes, I found, I found someone I think will work. And I said, who? And he said, Mark Norman. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no way. <laughs> Hilarious. And I think I, I think my, no, I, I think I said, uh, what makes you think you can get him? I think was my response in a more friendly way than I just said. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, cause he already said yes. Oh my God. And I was like, in my tracks, I said, what? And he runs down this whole deal. Our buddy, Tyler Nelson is a pilot and took him on a plane ride a year ago. So he DM'd him after our last show. Cause he was on such a comic high. He thought, fuck it. I'm going to text Mark. He did. He offered him a gig. He offered him a rate. Nobody talked to me. Not a good idea. <laughs> they made the whole deal and then sent me the details. And we're like, yeah. And I was like, all right, fuck it. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. And it didn't go at all the way we thought it would. He was booked at Shakespeare's on Friday and us on Saturday. And then at some point that was barrels and amps and us. And then that moved. And then we ended up doing all four shows at the brass tap pre making it the Romo room and the owner of the uh, brass tap came to the Mark Norman show and game over. He saw his restaurant full and, and it was like, Oh, you know, he's a huge comedy guy. I mean, he's starting to, he hasn't missed the show yet. Wow. Um, Yeah. He's, which is great. (laughs) Uh, You know, makes me give him tickets, this guy, but uh, (laughs) no, it's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, He's a, he's a good crew over there. And so it's, and then it just steamrolled and each person we've had has been goodwill for us in that community and they all know each other. So Brett Ernst is like, yeah, no, I saw you saw, I saw you had Mark. And then, you know, Godfrey's like, Hey, April Macy said, this is dope. Like, and it, and it just becomes, yeah. And it yeah. becomes that continuing thing. I just got off the phone with uh, Brett earlier today, talking about bringing him back later this year and, and also just catching up. Like there's a, there's a camaraderie there. Once you start working with these guys, because you're their lifeline in their career to, mm-hmm. to, and they, and they have so many that they have to keep all those pots kind of cooking and, and keep in touch. How you doing? Don't forget about me. I want to come back in this time. And that, snowball effect where it just keeps leading into another thing yeah um and then rogan says it and then hinchcliffe comes by and then all of a sudden it's like i mean i've heard brandon tell the same story you know he gets the call and they're like where can ron white park his bus and it's what like and we and we i know we all feel the same way anyone who acts cool about it's full of shit we're all like (laughs) what's happening but you know apparently that at least the 
those of us. And I want to mention uh, Dean Stanfield and Spencer Cavins have been doing a lot of stuff too. Um, and they got the Sunset Strip Club is opened and all that. I mean, there's so much more. I feel like I've, I've put the emphasis on Marty Colt and Brandon and I just because we kind of started a little bit before, but there's so much. And it's, I don't know, it's invigorating, not just for me. My, my energy goes outward. I'm like, just so excited for everybody. Like, yeah to see these kids get to open for Nate Bargatze. And, and like, I, I didn't even get to go to that show because my own sold out show I had to manage. Like <laughs> I was pissed I really <laughs> to see that show. And then it sold out early and I was like, I yeah. can't go anyway. Um, it's yeah, it's otherworldly. And I think it's going to be one of those things where we're all at some point, maybe later going to go to sleep and wake up the next day weeping with like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> it's so much. Um, but I, it's nothing but excitement, really. Um, and like I said, I like to bake. I like to make it what it is. And I'm much more of like build the ship and let it set sail. And I'm excited to, to do that in a lot of ways. And that frees me up to work on bigger, more lofty ideas for our project, you know, yeah. where I don't have to. I can go to Creek and Cave and talk to them and be a part of that scene and that community and let Pat run the dub show if that's what needs to be done. Now that we're getting to a place where that kind of infrastructure exists for us as a company, it frees me up to like get more creative and make new shit. And yeah. uh, I think we're finding a good balance. Yeah. It's the, the, the thing that has been running through my mind, you know, you had talked about how you never wanted to stay put in a, right. in a job because, you know, just, it was, always the same thing every day and I think about people who you know certainly in the old days and maybe it wasn't like this but in the old days when people would stay at jobs for you know an entire career they'd give you like a pension or something yeah imagine that <laughs> uh, they then you know today the reason that people stay in any given job is because it is changing every single day and it's not so much that okay you have job title for you know your entire career it's that every single day you walk in and your job is different and maybe that's what right. it is that you've always been craving in whatever job title it is that that you choose to have and you know yeah you're 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 facing that now where every single day it's something new because you are building that building yeah higher and i higher. think it's Right, exactly. And I think it's one of those things where we forget the context of the people who were alive right before we were alive. Yeah. And, you know, it's like there are people alive now that are like, you know, working age people whose parents lived through the depression. Yeah. So it should be no surprise that the generations immediately before those of us who grew up in the like 80s, 90s, 2000s where shit was abundant and Bill Clinton like fixed our budget and like, you know, we're just like making fucking Hollywood movies and, you know, crushing it until like 08. We had this huge decades of like growth and, and, and everything feeling like the American dream that even that Ronald Reagan trickle down shit everybody bought. It's like there was so much hope that it could be done and things could be fixed. We're out of most of the wars and the cold war was open over. It was like so much breath could be taken, but you forget that the people who lived through 
famine and us having no jobs and the, the like Spanish flu and that shit like just happened to our grandparents. Yeah. So when they raised us, they're like, get a fucking job that's good and keep it and don't fucking leave. Like, <laughs> what are you stupid? Taking a risk? And meanwhile, my generation's like, I'm bored. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. This is dumb. Like, <laughs> You have to have a little bit of that perspective. I get why my dad was like, you need to go to college and you need to get a scholarship to it. It's important. And then I ended up going to a school where I didn't even get a degree. And hello, zero people have asked where I went to college. (laughs) Nobody cares. And I went to one of the best schools in the country for what I do. Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it doesn't, it's not what they thought it was, but that's what they thought it was based on their experience of what life had been for them at that point. Right. right. And so <laughs> I think it's just having that context. Like it is a booming fun thing that we're doing right now, but it's also, it was, like you said, it was born out of a bunch of people seizing the opportunity to break the wheel and create a new way of doing it. Yeah. And I, think one way or another even all the way up to joe rogan i think we're committed to keeping it this way to making sure we have a scene that's diverse that it's like you can get up at multiple places you can see some of the best comics in the country at multiple places Mm -hmm. um in the same night you know i remember even when we put up mark normand like that was the first one we did it was in december before you know people were still like not totally going out to stuff Mm -hmm. Friday night of the Mark Norman weekend in Austin, if you wanted to, you had a choice between seeing Mark Norman, Big J Okerson, or Joe Rogan and Dave Chappelle. And it was like, I remember Pat looking at me, he goes, is this the biggest night in the history of Austin comedy? (laughs) When has there been this much? Like at, at most you would have had like maybe a fun moon tower weekend where you're like, Oh wow, they're all here, but they're all playing paramount. So you got to go to that one show. God forbid there would be something happening at paramount and cap at the same time. Like, and they're the same people. So it's like, that's not different. (laughs) That's like the same, that's the same thing. And, but now it's, yeah, it's who do you want to see? Yeah. And I mean, that is a non-rhetorical question to the Austin community now. You can just let us know and we'll try to work it out. It could happen. Uh, I'm going to give you a name after we record. So, Okay, cool. <laughs> somebody I'm dying to have come, come to Austin. <laughs> 100%. We'll do our best. Um, if you don't mind me asking, because it has sure. been such an interesting journey for you uh, since your return. How is your dad? Oh, I do. I do appreciate that. Um, I don't want to go into a lot of detail only because he's a very private person and I want to respect that. Um, it's a slow progression. I want to say he's doing 15 to 20% better than when I got here. So it's progress and, you know, we're working on it all the time, but it's, it's slow, you know, uh, multiple things at the same time. And, you know, just like everything else, COVID didn't help. You know, it was a lot harder to go to doctor's appointments and, you know, it's not good for your immunity to be locked in the house all the time. So it's not like we're all getting healthier by sitting on the couch. Uh, And so that kind of felt like stalled a lot of things that we were kind of making progress with, but, you know, we're hopeful and we're always trying to work on it and, and, and 
and do our best. And the really cool thing is that all the Romo room guys and gals are so supportive. Mm -hmm. That question gets asked of me a lot. I was very hesitant, as I mentioned at the beginning of this chat, to involve that in the business at all. Yeah. But I'm also a very transparent person. Uh, I went through a really long period in my life where I began to excel at deceit so well that it was almost consuming. I was a very difficult person to trust. Mm. And it took a lot of personal work and evolution to like grow out of that and live as a transparent, like honest person. Uh, I say the word fuck a lot more. Who <laughs> <laughs> like, gives a fuck? I don't know. Whatever. This is my <laughs> truth. Uh but, but in that regard, a, lo a lot of that was going to NCSA too. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we work on there is empathy and listening and, and inward reflection and, you know, and actual real therapy, all of that kind of combined to, to turn me into this kind of person who's like, look, I don't want to spread other people's business, but my truth is my truth and not expressing it is not healthy for me. So to some degree, I can't hide behind the fact that I built this company. I built this club for a specific reason. It wasn't, you know, a lot of people had guesses when I first moved here that were unkind about, oh, uh, I, my, my two favorites were, you seem like the kind of guy who looked at an open mic list and thought, wouldn't it be great if everybody on this list gave me money? Huh. And then uh, the, which is, a brilliant thought I wish I had had, but no, that's not my motivation. Uh, and then the other thing was, you're clearly a comic that couldn't get stage time. So you took some of your parents' money to give yourself your own stage so that yeah. you could do comedy. And um, in a weird twisted way, that was kind of true to give a little credence. No, in a way, I, I have to give a little credence to that. It really hurt my feelings at first, but I think that's because there's a tiny bit of truth in it only in that what I mentioned before of like when I would come home to Austin and try to get on stage or try to get involved, no one would let me in. So yeah, I made my own place. So I don't have guilt about that. That's true. And I did do it with my parents' money, but they asked me to. <laughs> uh, I didn't go, hey, I want to open a club, dad. Can I have a loan? That wasn't what happened at all. Uh, so that being the case and the case being a case of what really happened, uh, I find it the only truth to share is the real one. And, and to tell everybody, look, I named it the Romo room because my dad is Romo and this place exists to, for him to help supplement his income that, you know, my Bernie sensibilities have not kicked in nationally. And there's, there's not enough of a safety net for our seniors in so many ways. And um, so I'm building one myself and that's what it is. Um, again, whether or not people know that should not matter, but it is the truth. Yeah. And um, it's something that, like I said, he's a private person. So I, I, I'm not super vocal about it, but I also at the same time don't want to cover it up because I don't want to leave people to make their own assumptions about what our goals are mm -hmm. or what motivates us or how we came to be. It's like, you leave them room to, you know, it's like that horror thing, right? Nothing's scarier than your imagination. Right. So it's like, if I leave these people to guess, they're going to fuck it all up. So it's easier to just be like, here's the truth that you don't deserve because you won't give me benefit of the doubt, but this is it so that you know. And um, 
and it's, you know, it's positive that people respond to it. They, people want to know what's really going on with you. They don't want you to be the monster they made you out to be in their head. They're hoping they're wrong yeah. in a way, but they're not going to go out of their way. Most people to find out they're wrong. You have to tell them to their face without being a dick yeah. at the same time, which is hard when they've said that they want you to die and want your family to, to not exist in the town anymore and all this stuff. And you have to be like, nah, it's all right, man. Don't worry. You know? And it's, and, and it's so full circle, you know, it's the same people who were telling me to get out of town who are DMing me now, like, Hey man, I got an hour. If you need anybody, you know, <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. I bet you do. Uh, you have been so generous with your time today. Uh, we're going to start wrapping up and I want to, uh, before I, I, I close out, I want to ask, is there anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure that people know about, about you? Goodness, probably not. I'm sure I've said far too much. Um, I'm quite verbose. Uh, no, I, uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think, I think what I've said is, is essentially it, but if, if I were to kind of sum up my overall point about all this, it's just that we just want to be a building. We yeah. don't even want to be the tallest building. I don't think, I don't think it's good for everybody to keep trying to be the tallest building. I think just keep building yours better. Listen to your people in your building yeah. and what they like and want to do. And, and if it's paying your bills and you know, I, I'm not one of those people who's like, Hey, we made a thousand dollars. Oh, we could have made 2000. No, man, we made a thousand dollars. Yeah that we didn't have. I, I, that's just my attitude. And I think, I really hope that it kind of, that culture happens from the top on down for all the other people who are running things in town. I hope that that attitude remains as much as possible uh, a through line to what we're doing because I hear it from the micers. That's what they want. Yeah. You know, the, the, the comics who are moving here to make this their life, which we should respect that. Yeah. Whether or not it's going to work out for them is irrelevant. We should yeah. respect the fact that like I did, Pat Bernard, Ozzy Moon, all these people, so many of us mm -hmm. packed up our shit and moved to a new town with very little to try to do comedy. And you got to respect that. You got to give that to people as like, you got balls. So many people just sit in their hometown and, and waste away thinking about what they want to do. Yeah. And you did it. Why shouldn't we give you six nights a week to practice? Why shouldn't we make sure that if you play our club, you also get to play somewhere else? We don't give a shit. Like, I just, I, I hope that that remains pervasive. And, and I know that me and all the other Romo Room folks are going to keep shouting it from the rooftops because at least that's how we plan on doing it. Yeah. Very good. Are you ready for your closing question? Oh, shit. Is it a one word question? <laughs> it is. Oh, one yeah. One word to describe your future. If you've listened to me this whole time, you know what a challenge one word is. Um, let's see. Uh, my first, my impulse was hopeful um, because it just seems like there's a lot of really great, cool stuff um, on its way all the time. Uh, very excited to get married, very much in love with my <laughs> fiance. She's awesome. Uh, it was a really, you know, long path to finding that everybody else in my family like got married and had kids in their early twenties and I'm 32. Oh. And so I'll be 33 when I get married, which is like 
<laughs> like a spinster in my family. And they're like, Jesus Christ, what are you waiting on? It's like, ah, the right person. Um, but I think I think it's um I think it's it's an amount of I hope for rest. I hope I hope for a time. This sounds so weird because I I get so excited. I feel like my life force is is this thing I'm I'm hoping leaves me in a way. It sounds dark, but it's not. My life force, like I said, has been making stuff. And when I'm not making, I feel unhappy. Yeah. I I feel unfulfilled. I feel empty. And I'm hoping that one day I feel like I've made it. Not made it like in quotes, but like that I've made it all. I've made everything I'm going to make. I've already to this day, and I say this every time. I said it this weekend as I was driving home from the Dove Davidoff show. I was like, other than my future wife and my family, if I died tomorrow just on my own shit, (sighs) killed it. Great. (laughs) Great life. Did a great, this has been awesome. I did a bunch of cool shit. I had a bunch of friends and family and coworkers and all that stuff. I've experienced a lot of young death in my life. Just very coincidental. I, you know, one of my friends died when I was like 16. Uh, I told you the story about my theater teacher. That kind of stuff does not happen to everybody. I've had a lot of that. Just where I'm like, man, they didn't even get a, some of them didn't even get a chance. Yeah. Whether it was their choice or whatever. It was like, and, and that's hit me every time. So all those people were younger than me. I can't, I remember the day I realized how old Tupac and Biggie were when they died. I was already in my late twenties and I never even thought about it. And I was like, they are 20. What? Like in that time. And then they didn't get any more. I I think I'm, I'm humbled by that shit all the time that I've already gotten 33 years on this planet. I can't believe it. And so for me, I hope I get to a point where I'm, I'm watching the garden run itself you know, all the things that I've made and done. And, and, it, and those things are, those machines are being used and utilized well by the, by the people that are, that are running them at that point. Um, so I look forward to rest. <laughs> I'm a pretty <laughs> tired guy. Like I'm generally like people are like, what's up? I'm like, oh, man, and no words. Uh, so yeah, I look forward to rest and I guess I'm hopeful about that. Okay. Okay, well, that is a wrap on Comedy Wham Presents. Rob Morris, tell us where we can find you on social media. Let us know about upcoming shows and projects you're excited about. And Ms. For Burns sure, for sure. Uh, is this going to be out this week or next week, you think? Uh, it will be out May 1st. Okay, got it, got it. So we're talking about May then. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, socials uh, at Romo Room ATX is our Instagram. Um, at Rob Morris Yo is my Instagram. Um, I don't believe in unfamous people being on Twitter. Uh, so I do. So we, me, me and my club have accounts, but as a protest, we don't participate. Um, that's, that's pretty, I'm really an Instagram guy. I don't really know how almost anything else works. Uh, so I'm, that's my main, that's my main place. Um, coming up in May. Man, what we have, we're really excited about May at the Romo Room. Actually, there's some really cool stuff going on where we are going to be doing a lot of independent projects. Like when we were, we're going to have headliners. We're going to, we're going to do stuff, but we really tried to, we really tried to, 
we really tried to make April about the headliners. We, you know, we brought in Sam Tripoli and Godfrey and Doug Davidoff. We have Alex Raimundo this Friday. We have my buddy, Matty Chimber on Saturday. Uh, and we really wanted to make a big noise about like, this is what you can come to expect from us, mm -hmm. but it's not going to be every month. We're going to have four headliner shows. Um, and may, I think we're going to have some, but we're also going to be doing some like interesting show ideas that the comics have come up with. Like we're going to be roasting old movies. We're going to be huh. uh, doing a bunch of new digital content. We want to get our podcasting platform uh, going again, our YouTube channel revitalized. So we're, we're kind of taking the, the, the bag that we got from, from this month that uh, we all busted our asses to get. And we want to pour that a little bit back into the comedy community. So if this is airing on May 1st, I believe it'll be the night after. So last night would have been uh, our open mic showcase. So we're going to start doing a monthly, our favorite open micers that we saw, pick, pick our favorites and, and put them up and, and be frank about like, hey, look, they, they showed up on a fucking Tuesday and blew us away. So we want to give them a shot. Um, yeah. And so we have a few different ideas like that, that are going to be coming in May as well. Uh, this Sunday, which will have been last Sunday now, uh, the 25th, we're doing an all veteran show. So all veteran comics, um, uh, post-military, not veteran comics, <laughs> uh, actual military veteran, uh, who are also comedians as well as, um, it's for vets. It's a free show for vets. So if you're a vet, you get into the show free and, uh, one of the comics that I met um, in Austin, who's a, a vet, was telling me that, of course, we all, if you, I hope, uh, know that the veteran suicide rate is astronomical. It has been for a long time. It goes kind of fluctuates, but it's always been bad. But COVID just blew the, doubled the number. Uh, it's, it's really scary stuff. And he was really giving me the down low. And he was like, the number one thing you can do to help vets not to not kill themselves is to give them shit to do we need missions we need assignments we need a a, a date a plan a oh. purpose and when we don't we start to because of the way we've been conditioned we start to believe we don't serve any purpose if we don't have anything to do so he's like i want to start making vet comedy for com vets and i was like sold easy of course let's do it um, I think what we talked about, we don't have exact numbers, but like vets get in free. Anyone else who comes, we donate everything to a veteran charity at the end of the night. It's not, it's not anything we're trying to make money off of at all. It's just something that we want to try to do to give back. Yeah. Um, so now that we've kind of made our nut a little bit on some of these bigger shows, we want to kind of start pouring our energy into some of the stuff that doesn't pay us as well, but that we're passionate about. Yeah. So that's all coming in May. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed learning about how Rob got to be the uh, comedic genius, but let me also say the baker in chief <laughs> uh, that oh, you goodness. heard today just as much as I have. This has been Comedy Wham presents Rob Morris. I'm Valerie, and that's been funny. Thank you, Rob. Thank you.